2: Or wherever you get your podcasts oh this week's classic classic episode might might ruffle a few feathers and shake a few tentacles uh generally speaking people like democracy but uh behind closed doors a lot of folks think democracy is just something you sell to the rubes
0: yeah, I mean, the the original name of the episode was, Is Democracy Possible? We could just, you know, nip it in the bud here and just say, no, end of episode. But it's a little more complex than that, y'all. There are nuances. Yeah, we're going to jump into the
3: story of a dude you may not know called Walter Lippman. This dude is fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not one of our favorite guys on the planet uh, that, that existed. Uh, but yeah, it, it just he he illustrates let's say he writes directly about how to control people using democracy as like a guise
2: from ufos to psychic powers and government conspiracies history is riddled with unexplained events you can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know
3: Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt.
2: They call me Ben. Our compatriot, Noel, is away for the moment. But never fear, our super producer, Paul Deckant is here. Most importantly, you're here, and you are you. That makes this stuff
3: they don't want you to know. Now, you may recall our very first episode ever. On a a gentleman named Edward Bernays. One of the most important and, uh slightly obscure at least until our episode came out thinkers in history
2: <laughs> right yes the the man commonly known as the father of public relations the uh, most famous uh, most famous relative of sigmund freud in our modern age both of those things are true if you're a fan of this show and you haven't listened to that episode of the podcast Uh, It is one of the few that Matt and I categorically recommend you listen to and share with your friends, family, and colleagues. Without going too far into what happens in that episode, let's put it this way. Edward Bernays is the reason that you and your loved ones, as well as your enemies too probably, practice several things that seem normal
3: today. Seem normal. Yeah, because you know – that very, very quickly, it's insane how quickly people can become accustomed to something, something that, is not normal, and then all of a sudden becomes normal to the average individual, to an entire community, perhaps, or even civilization as a whole. Something that was never done before, Mm -hmm. and now it's normal.
2: Right. Yeah, it's likewise astonishing how rarely we question bizarre things. So often we hide behind the idea of tradition as a species, I mean, or so often we – we don't ask fundamental questions about why something is framed the way it is or presented the way it is. Uh, for instance, why do we eat bacon for breakfast? This was not the case for the vast majority of uh, human eras on this planet. Uh, why are we actually at war with a particular country at any given time? And One that I always go back to as as a strange example here is Matt why why do people wear ties like neckties?
3: Oh, well, it's because of the uh form. It's all about form, not so much function. Uh. Yeah, it just looks really good to have that line going down the chest.
2: Mm, someone's read a couple of uh fashion guides, I see.
3: Yes, make it work.
2: <laughs> so, there yeah, that's that's a good point. We did earlier on a different show that we've worked with in the past called Brain Stuff, we looked at the origin of where neckties come from and Matt, you are spot on, correct? It's, was I actually correct? It serves no function.
3: Oh, okay. Good. It's Got- not <laughs> I was I was uh talking from the tukus.
2: <laughs> it's not a it's not a functional thing. A tukus is more uh, functional than a necktie. <laughs> So leading to this, why why does a country work a certain way? Folks, think about the government in the country that you live in today or the governments in countries you used to live in, right? How closely does the government in practice adhere to the theory of government as outlined in your country's constitution or other documents?
3: Yeah. Uh, ours yeah. is, you know, getting it right for – Some of the most part?
2: Well, most people, regardless of where they live, will generally agree that there is at least some degree of difference between the government on paper and the government in practice, right? Mm -hmm. And in some cases, this can seem like a relatively obscure difference, right? Or it can seem like a, a matter of persnickety, nitpicking interpretation But speaking of obscure, uh, today's episode focuses on uh, another figure, sort of like Bernays, uh, another profoundly important,
3: equally obscure historical figure, Walter Lippmann. Now, when we say he's obscure, we mean to the public, to the everyday Joe and Jane walking around. Mm. uh, They probably don't know. Uh, who Walter Lippin is? I did not know who this person was until we started thinking about this episode and reading some of the materials. Mm-hmm. Um, just like Edward Bernays, but the, but these gentlemen were very much well known within circles of the powerful. I think we should at least like put that out there, right? Like they were they were the guy.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. The uh, we were. Uh, it's funny because uh, before Paul, Matt, and I went on air today I brought in a uh, a fancy glass yes. for my typical coffee uh, because we are talking about
3: the elite and uh, it looks like an absinthe glass got to be honest with you
2: <laughs> well I'll tell you what it is uh truth be told not as convenient as the regular mug or <laughs> cup that I would typically use but you know tradition oh. right
3: <laughs> so uh, very
2: nice so here are the facts about Walter Lippmann. As we said, nowadays, Walter Lippmann is, let's say, obscure enough that were you to walk on a on the average city street and ask someone, you know, identify the following figures. Say, you know, Neil Armstrong probably know that mm-hmm. know he's some sort of astronaut maybe yeah at, at the least uh, identify you know the current or past presidents they probably probably at least recognize the name of past presidents right uh, but if you said who's Walter Lippman they would say I don't does he, does he own the grocery store I don't yeah. know Uh Unless, of course, you were asking someone in Harvard and then the answer might very well be, I think that's a building on campus. Yeah, I'm
3: pretty sure it's the Lippmann building.
2: Mm -hmm. But as you said, Matt, in his day, this man was profoundly influential uh, and remains so.
3: So let's get to know him a little bit. Walter Lippmann was born on September 23rd, 1889. 1889 in New York. He was a, a child of privilege. He attended the Sachs School for Boys before uh, matriculating into Harvard. Now, uh, Sachs, by the way, S-A-C-H-S, you might recognize that name somewhere with a Goldman in front of it. right? Like Goldman Sachs. Yes. Um, and this is uh, where he studied at Harvard uh, under the famous philosopher and novelist George Santayana. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was a
2: teacher of numerous other uh, – numerous other people who went on to become uh, literary lions. You know, T.S. Eliot would be one of the most famous examples. Mm-hmm.
3: Then uh, in May of 1910, he began his career in journalism as a whoosh, whoosh, cub reporter with the Boston Common after he dropped out of his uh, – the master's course that he was taking at Harvard University.
2: And this this is interesting because we found a couple of different things in the research. You'll find many biographies that say he graduated right in 1910, and then you'll find other writers who say that he dropped out. Yeah. So either way, he he did go to Harvard at some point. He was assistant uh, to the philosopher novelist George Santayana uh, in 1913. Lippmann co-founded a paper called The New Republic. It's a liberal American magazine that published articles on politics and. And the arts and uh, in that same year, he published a book called A Preface to Politics and his writing, his philosophy at this time in this early phase garnered the attention of one Woodrow Wilson.
3: And just a little side note there about the New Republic. At the time when he founded it in – Quite, for quite some time afterwards, it had a fairly small readership of only, you know, ten to 20,000 people. Mm-hmm. But the people reading that magazine were the important people.
2: Right. The, the bankers, the professors, the jurists. Mm-hmm. And in 1914, Lippmann was appointed as an advisor to President Wilson, Woodrow Wilson. And during this time, he helped the president draft a famous speech – about uh, World War I and was called The 14 Points. You can read it in full online today. So Lipman was at this point an interventionist in a largely isolationist society. And what, what we mean by that is that the majority of the U.S. public did not support foreign intervention because there was this feeling that, well, one.
3: Why should we get involved?
2: Right. It's it's imperialist mm-hmm. on some level. And two, uh, we're separated by oceans, right? Uh, and there's no imminent threat at this point. In this isolationist society, Lipman was an interventionist. He was one of the people who argued that it was both rational and advantageous for the United States to enter into World War I in some capacity or another. He wrote propaganda that was meant to sway the needle on public support, right? Because in a representative democracy, the theory goes that the voters must support a large scale government action or at least the majority of voters must support something for it to occur.
3: Yes, because the representative part of that government, the the people's part of the government uh, in Congress, they are the ones that actually declare war and enact war. Especially at this time for World War 1, so you had to get the voters and the the people's voice to say yes, let's do this.
2: And so Lipman and Edward Bernays both worked for what was called the Committee on Public Information. I love that name, Mm. the Committee on Public Information. And this was a wartime propaganda institution built to do two things. First, to spread or propagate pro-intervention, pro-war literature, art Music, anything in pop culture as well as academic arguments for intervention on the part of the U.S. And then the second task was to suppress, discredit or destroy anything that was Mm anti-war. So if you – just pulling an example out of thin air, right, uh, one – one way in which something like this might occur, this still happens today, it happened for decades after, uh, would be let's say there are two – there are two art galleries okay. in a town and one of them has a, has a featured artist who is – glorifying the moral duty or imperative to save people in another country. And this, this gallery is filled with this one artist work. And then in the other gallery, uh, there's someone who has a uh, exhibits about imperialism and the unintentional tyranny of intervening, whatever your intentions, in a culture you don't understand, in a civilization that never asked for nor needed your help. What this sort of operation would do would not be to have the government openly shut them down. You would have critics from newspapers praising whichever side. It doesn't matter what side we're talking about. You would have critics praising the interventionist if they wanted to intervene or praising the isolationist, And then you would have them also... Dismissing or ignoring the other side of that cultural argument, and, it's it's, like yeah.
3: it's almost this um uh, soft aggression mm-hmm. tactic that that is employed by this stuff in in a weird way it's it's not fully going after a lot of times, at least from what I was reading in this research mm-hmm. the 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 committee on public information wouldn't necessarily physically go after anyone, but they would use the media. To, like you said, Ben, completely ignore or just trash mm-hmm. something that they didn't agree with.
2: Right. Yes, exactly. And the most important part of that is in these sorts of operations, you wouldn't know the ultimate force behind this trend. It would appear to be—this and this is the most important part—it would appear to be an organic consensus— Arrived at by every Jane, uh, John, and Jimmy Smith in America. Just to pick, I don't know, ridiculous.
3: It's almost like the Rotten Tomato score. If the (laughs) Tomato score is at a certain height, or Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if it's in the 80s, you're like, oh man, okay, I'm going to go see that. You don't even have to read the stuff about it. If it's in like the 30s or 20s, then oh, I'm probably not going to go see that trash.
2: Because you don't have time, usually, if you're the average person, to go through and read every single review. No, you, you want the uh, the bottom line, the best news. Explain it to me now, because I'm almost off the elevator, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or the light almost turned green, as the case mm-hmm. would be for or, many commuters. Or I
3: only have twenty bucks to spend, and I got to choose where I'm going to spend it.
2: Even better. Lippmann also traveled the world and wrote uh, extensively, prolifically. That's that's such a fantastic dream life, you know.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Like uh, here I am in Vienna, and
3: here are my thoughts on <laughs> the, the Viennese. Oh man, you want to be Anthony Bourdain so badly, don't you? Lippmann? No, you. <laughs>
2: oh, I. You know what? You know what? Uh, food centric. I think yeah, I think he's doing a great job being Anthony Bourdain. Okay, but uh, but I appreciate it. Yeah, I'd love. Uh, who wouldn't love to travel the world and write? I I, I don't know. Yeah, I
3: can't think of anyone.
2: So Lippman was no exception to that that rule that we have arbitrarily decided is almost universal.
3: So then, on September eighth, nineteen thirty one, uh, Lippman's column for the New York Herald, which was called "Today and Tomorrow." Love that title. It first appeared, and eventually this was syndicated to more than 250 newspapers within the United States and then another 25 other nations. And then it also won two Pulitzer Prizes, one in 1958 and another in 1962.
2: So in his day, Walter Lippmann was a world-famous columnist for the New York Times and other papers of note. And – Overall, the world held his opinion in tremendously high regard. He lived amid New York's elite and therefore a a percentage of the world's elite. <laughs> uh, he dined with presidents. He would write speeches for them. He advised them in formal and informal capacities. He was a true man behind the curtain. So
3: let's talk about what he truly believed in.
2: Right. Yeah. This is all well and good. But why, why is he the subject of today's episode? Uh, is he them? Is he the they and stuff they don't want you to know? What did he actually believe? We'll tell you after a word from our sponsor.
4: Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst and the Jinx. Now, the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching The Furthest Thing from the Truth, on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: So
2: let's bring the uh, the rubber to the road, Matt. Walter Lippman is responsible for creating, popularizing, coining several terms that you have almost certainly used at some point in your life, friends and neighbors. Uh, the first one is the well. Let's let's do let's do one that's a little U.S. specific first. That's the Cold War. Hmm. He he is the person who popularized the term Cold War with a series of articles in 1947 called
3: the Cold War.
2: Huh? Right? Uh. Yeah.
3: Pretty good. When you title something, it's probably going to stick.
2: Uh in those articles, he was speaking out against President Truman's policy of containment hmm. uh and the more popular term that you have you have obviously heard there's no one who has not heard this this term at least no one that speaks English that has not heard this term, and that is stereotype
3: yes, one of his works, public opinion, it begins with. The World Outside and the Pictures in Our Heads this is the chapter that introduced his idea of a stereotype, what what a stereotype is. And uh, it explained how public opinion was formed and how it was manipulated because of what we trust as what he called an authentic messenger. Mm -hmm. So as we mentioned before, Lippmann was working um, with the Committee on Public Information, also called the Creel Committee. And they were influencing public opinion by censoring information that was anti-war. They were also producing thousands of these pro-war pamphlets and and cartoons and magazines, and movies, all kinds of media. Uh, also, the USA would enter World War I or World War, let's say, in yeah, they, 1917. It wasn't a one uh, at the time. Nobody,
2: nobody was waiting for the sequel.
3: But the whole idea is that the United States said it was not going to enter World War I no matter what. And this committee is sitting there actively trying to make it happen.
2: Right. So this, this idea of a stereotype – the Picture in Our Heads versus The World Outside uh, is is the subject of a great deal of thought and public opinion in the Lipman book. In this work, he attempts to explain how these pictures that arise almost spontaneously in people's minds, he was hoping to explain how those come about. The s- most simple way to say it would be that, according to Lippmann we all live in these second-hand worlds. And we live this way because we are aware of much more than we have ever personally experienced. You know, we, like uh, Neil Armstrong. We know that astronauts exist, but many people have never met and will never meet one. We know that billionaires exist, but many people have never met and will never meet one. We know that... um Reddit loves this joke about this town in Germany that everyone says doesn't exist. Maybe a better example would be Bhutan. You know the nation of Bhutan exists, but many people will never go there. That's good. So according to this, Lippmann's argument is that our own personal experience is primarily secondhand, primarily indirect. We read about things. We watch things about things And hope that the people who have experienced it directly are telling us something objective, rational, and accurate. The truth. Yeah. In other words, the truth. Yes.
3: That's why when you get mermaids on Discovery Channel, you're like, what? Oh, boy. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I think enough time has passed
2: for us to tell people.
3: We've talked about it before. So
2: here's another aspect. What did he think of democracy? Because you see Lipman wouldn't have considered himself just a journalist. In fact, he considered himself a public philosopher and most of his work centered around the concept of democracy in all its forms, representative democracy, so on. So what did he think of it? Unfortunately, it's a terrifying question. Early on, He was optimistic about this American or U.S. flavor of democracy. He embraced what we would call a Jeffersonian perspective. He believed that the American public would become intellectually engaged in political and world issues and that they would fulfill the ultimate role of the public, right, which is to be an educated – electorate not only does everyone vote but everyone understands the issues at play and why they're voting the way that they do if you ask them who the uh if you ask them who the county commissioner is going to be and why they would know mm. if you ask them about humanitarian spending in you know Yemen or in Mauritania or something not only would they know their position on it but they would know why
3: yeah do you support engaging Germany and defending Poland or, you know, some, something to that effect? And you would hope that the person would come back with a reasoned argument about why or why not. Mm-hmm. That would be nice.
2: Sure. Well, that was that, – that's the optimistic view. But with the role of industrialization weighing heavy in his mind, the events leading to World War II and the spread of totalitarianism – Uh, Lippmann came to reject this view. Instead, he felt that nobody was questioning fundamental assumptions of democracy.
3: Yeah, he didn't believe democracy as we understand it was working uh, at all. And specifically, he didn't believe that the average citizen was in any way qualified to have any kind of input uh, in the realm of politics Mm -hmm. or in the actions of the state and um, basically the the public was being led around like this pack of animals by journalists and the media and people who reported what the government was saying.
2: Right. During the 1920s, Lippmann published two more books which were criticisms, indictments of humanity. They were – in the parlance of our time, they were diss tracks, yeah. right? Mixed, <laughs> like hot mixtape diss tracks. Uh, one was called Uh, criticizing democracy. One was called public opinion and the other was called the phantom public. The American voter, Lipman claimed, was not capable of acting out of any rational, collective self-interest or even fully considering the issues at hand in a rational way, not only not having an answer to a question but not understanding the question. Instead, he said, the average voter was ill-informed myopic and prone to fits of enthusiasm. So in his disillusionment, if we were to put it in a modern context, would be something along the lines of, hey, you are supposed to vote in every election based on your aggregate calculation, whatever Mm -hmm. that might be of who becomes the best candidate. Right or uh, why you think a certain local law should or should not be in place. When he says that a voter is ill informed, he means that they he means they don't know what they're talking yeah. about. Right, they don't understand the issue for one reason or another. And when he says myopic, he means that they might be what's often called a single issue voter, someone who says, "Well, I will typically vote." You know, for a certain ideological standpoint or a certain party line, but the only thing I really care about is you know the um, the the illegality of owning a wildebeest. I think yeah. it should be illegal. I think that you know the country's going to hell in a handbasket if one more person can own a wildebeest. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> and that's that's what I vote on. That's it.
3: Yeah, and that's that's where you get some of the more uh, social issues becoming the most prominent things that are spoken about in the media. When sure. you think about uh, stances on abortion or stances mm-hmm. on Second Amendment rights, mm-hmm. things that aren't necessarily the most important things to be focusing on, but they become the one thing that the voter will latch on to.
2: And that's the craziest part because essentially it makes this an exercise in Mad Lib in a very dangerous way. Yeah, Uh, I hope everybody has had the wonderful opportunity to play Mad Lib on a road trip or something growing up, but Mad Lib is a game wherein you ask— Are talking to
3: people like they don't know what Mad Libs are?
2: I feel like we can't make assumptions.
3: Uh, I guess so. Yeah, you're right.
2: (laughs) Why why are you giving me this (laughs) voice? Let's
3: let's tell people what Mad Libs are. Uh, You
2: do it, but do it in the voice.
3: (laughs) Okay. Uh, Mad Libs, you guys— is where you got a bunch of blanks in a sentence, a long set of sentences perhaps, and you fill those blanks in with nouns and adjectives, adverbs. <laughs> and then you read the whole thing and you got this jumble, wackadoodle sentence. I I, I feel like you were
2: unfairly criticizing me. I, I don't know. Not everybody. OK. It, maybe, maybe everybody knows what math lips are. You think they do? <laughs>
3: I don't know. Yeah, I think you're. I think we're somewhere in the middle. Some people don't know what they are, but people who are listening to this podcast,
2: know probably what an do.
3: Is. <laughs> yeah, probably do. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> hey, write in. Conspiracy dot com. <laughs> do you know what a lib is?
2: So, so the reason I'm setting that up, Matt. <laughs> Uh, is because uh, the, it's, it's a fundamental assumption that you and I are making.
3: That, You're absolutely right. That people
2: would all know what a Mad Lib is and how it functions, right? And so the idea of fits of enthusiasm, right? That's the last, the last piece of his, his primary criticism there. Uh, the idea of fits of enthusiasm would be uh, best explained today by social media, right? Ooh. So you see a post and it's shared over and over look at all these assholes buying wildebeest. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. This has to stop. And then all of a sudden, somebody who ordinarily would never vote, would never, yeah. you know, go to a protest or maybe even isn't that active uh, in their social media, right? right? Then all of a sudden, it's the most important thing. You know, and we, we've talked a little bit about the really uh, – Uh, Really depressing, borderline disgusting news cycle that occurs not just in mass media, broadcast media, but also in social media where where you see a tragedy, a real genuine tragedy occur and then two weeks later, the people who were incredibly incensed about it have completely forgotten because now – Uh, God forbid, someone wears something stupid at an awards show.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Which
2: I know sounds... Brutal, but that, that's the fact of the matter. So that's what I think he's talking about when he says fits of enthusiasm. I
3: think you're absolutely right. And another thing that you could kind of lop into that would be the sloganism that has occurred at least in the past two elections. And it occurs throughout American elections. But having yes, we can chanted by people and then put on bumper stickers and then that, that single sentimentality of yes, we can do it becoming this moving force Four mm. voters, and then make America great again as well, just something that encapsulates the enthusiasm of the people who you are trying to get behind you
2: oh yeah, i don't know or or denigrates the the value or the perception of people or institutions that are against what you want to have happen ah. right, like dirty wildebeesters I don't know, I'm just going to ride this wildebeest, yeah, yeah, comparison to to the ground. <laughs> oh boy yeah we uh we could i, I should women picked, oh, there we go. I should have picked a better i should have picked a better animal
3: I think wildebeests
2: are great i'm I'm actually i'm learning about wildebeest uh for an
3: unrelated thing <laughs> happens to the best of us man. sounds a
2: little sketchy, but it's a it's a true story uh write in let us know about your experiences with wildebeest so this this idea that voters will tend to not know what's going on, will tend to focus on only one thing and will tend to uh, Im- impulsively lash out in sporadic burst or impulsively participate in sporadic burst rather than continually exercising the rights and responsibilities of citizenship. Uh, this, he argued, was being used to insidious advantage by other forces in play.
3: Yeah, he thought other parts of the government perfected the art of manipulating the public. It's this uh, idea of manufacturing consent. You might recognize that phrase from uh, some of Noam Chomsky's work. He took it directly from Walter Lippmann and he's stated that before. Um, Like, you know, it's this idea of 1984. Right. We've always been at war with East Asia. Oh, man. Right? I thought we
2: had always been at war with... Oceana.
3: Another one of Lippmann's beliefs was that uh, the American people's increasing obsession with consumerism was causing them to have a decreased awareness and concern for pressing public issues. So basically they were being distracted by constantly wanting to buy new things, upgrade at this point their house, upgrade their lives um, and the things around them rather than the larger issues that were looming overhead.
2: Mm, Okay, I see. So that the idea then that keeping up with the Joneses becomes one of the number one policy issues for a, a household.
3: Well, yeah. Yeah. Just the, the – yeah, you're absolutely right. The policy issue is now within the home and the clothes that you're wearing and the food that you're eating. And it's just – it doesn't matter if there's something going on in Europe. Right. I
2: see all these people – posting these high-minded, sanctimonious arguments about owning wild animals, but do they even have a refrigerator? Do yeah. they even have cable?
3: And where are they posting them in the 1900s? You know, like 1900s. a bulletin board? Uh, that's what it is. Bio- the community <laughs> bulletin board. Yeah,
2: at the corners, at the uh, general store. hmm <laughs> Yeah, good call though, Matt. Uh, so – He felt that journalism was partially to blame for this because it was not fulfilling what he saw as its correct duties, which again, in theory, on paper, would be providing rational, accurate information. And one big issue for him in this regard was what was known as muckraking or what we call uh, investigative journalism if we want to put a necktie on it, Uh, and he he objected to this because he saw it as a means to foment distrust of public institutions and officials. And then Lippmann wondered, you know what? Why should someone who isn't a physicist have a voice in conversations about physics? And, you know, that makes sense, right? If the, if the physicists of the world are all in one room and they're arguing about the – the the latest theory in physics, right? And and what we can learn the future uh, mm-hmm. rushes toward us, infinite in its promise and its danger. And then there's one guy who's not a physicist. He's just like in the room.
3: He's a psychiatrist.
2: Okay, sure. He's qualified in something else. Maybe he's a psychiatrist. What 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 can he lend to this conversation? I, I happen to think a psychiatrist would be able to lend a lot of insight into a conversation with. Physicist,
3: yeah, he just he's he can't spell very well. So he saw the sign on the door uh, with the committee (laughs) of physicists, and he thought he was in the right place.
2: (laughs) There we go. That seems to make sense, right, on some level. So Lipman, if you can imagine him scratching his chin for a second here, he thinks, yeah, that checks out. So, how is the world of politics any different?
1: start having sex and then he's
4: very vulnerable so you can kill him easily
1: to die for is available now listen for free on the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your
3: podcasts
2: this is the dangerous part no single individual Lipman thought could easily understand the complexity of the modern world. There's just too much stuff going on. Furthermore, he believed that the idea of an authentic public opinion, meaning a consensus or agreement formed by people who were knowledgeable about public affairs and interested in public affairs, he believed this was mainly a myth. This was a unicorn. This was winning the lottery 17 times in two weeks. I guess it could happen.
3: Yeah, You would have to have a lot of things go perfectly right in order to achieve that state, I think. Mm. So I think perhaps Littman might be on the right track there, but uh, he's a bit polarizing about it. He's just uh, one way or the other way. Mm. He he proposed that the most effective form of governance would be a world in which the elite. Mm, The cognoscenti. Oh, the cognoscenti. That's uh, those who are in the know, Mm. just like you. (laughs) <laughs> listening out there, right. um, he thought they would have, if these people had all of the authoritative agency, then they could make these benevolent, indisputable decisions for all of us, the unwashed masses. Right. The hoi polloi, the peasants, the uneducated. That, that's actually you and me and Ben. According to them. But not Paul. Paul's one of the uh, – gosh, you can just see the eliteness on his face. He wears a tuxedo to work every day. Oh, it does look nice though.
2: And I have to say, Paul, I respect you because I notice it's always a different tuxedo. You're not phoning it in. Mm -hmm. So, away from tuxedos and and back to the elite, Lippmann is essentially arguing that the informed public does not exist, that the public is despite what is on paper about democracy inherently incapable of doing what is right, doing what is smart and doing what is good for lack of a better word. So instead, he pictures this sort of technocracy, this this leadership of uh, scientists and longtime politicos who will be able to make the decisions on behalf of all the other people in a country. And this this means that not only would you as a voter not have a say in something like a, uh, a, something like a, a law about pollution or a law about regulation or deregulation, but you also wouldn't have – knowledge of what was going on. So that's his idea, that the control of information, both gathering it and distributing it, would be in the hands of this technocracy that would be trusted to use scientific methods to figure out what was really going on and make Good decisions, not just about what's happening, but about who should receive specific messages. He wanted to establish a semi-governmental or quasi-governmental intelligence bureau that would evaluate information, supply it to other elites to make decisions. And this bureau could also determine which pieces of information should be transmitted through the mass media to the public and which pieces of information people were better off not knowing.
3: And he would've he would have gotten away with it if it wasn't <laughs> for those dastardly kids coming up with the old internet thing.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that Scooby Doo moment is appropriate here. We should say that Walter Lippman later stepped away or retreated From this elitist argument to a degree, but that idea remains massively influential and not too unfamiliar historically when we consider the past governments of earlier civilizations, right? There's a king and all the uh, people that the king's ancestors slept with and they're in charge.
3: Yeah, that's just the way it is, especially if they have uh, divinity about them that God has somehow – Chosen them
2: right, or there's a chieftain, same thing, or mm-hmm. there's a, um, re, you know, there's a religious leader, yeah, same thing. Here's where it gets crazy. Not only did Lippmann think that democracy was more or less impossible in its current form, but more and more people seem to, in practice, agree with him today.
3: They do, and this is what we've spoken about already on the show. Uh, Critics of both the theoretical function of the current government and the practical function of the government seem to often agree that the average voter, you and me and everybody else, doesn't know much but is instead ruled by emotion and is prone to impulsive, irrational decisions. Now, irrational here would mean voter decisions – are actually working against the voter's self-interest. What you would, you should be voting for. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can. There are a lot of examples with that, especially when you talk about tax reform. And then you know, the majority of the voters, especially in the lower to the middle class, you know, not seeing the benefits that may perhaps people in the upper classes would see. Um, and you have more voters in that lower class, but you're still going to get a popular uh, consent a lot of times.
2: Right. Of course. And this is not. Something that is in any way exclusive to a political party? No. A, a, a genre of a political party, or, or an issue, or an issue. Yeah, uh, this is a uh, this is a tendency that Lipman sees, and that the current people in charge, whatever that time is, and whatever uh, really whatever post Lipman ideology you want to you want to grasp at. This is typically what people in power will believe. And we can see this in action. There's an interesting tendency here because later critics, such as uh, William F. Buckley on the on the right side of American politics or Noam Chomsky on the left side, both saw special interest as the ultimate decision makers in too many political discussions. Of course, uh, these these two fellows, these two guys would, not agree with each other, and I'm sure they would disagree on exactly which organizations they considered tyrannical special interest groups, but the point remains. In Chomsky's arguments in particular, the media is seen as acting as a street enforcer for what he sees as special interests, this inextricably entwined system of government officials, heads of businesses, large corporations— These powers behind the throne too often are seen as the real voters. And that's uh, unfortunately a, a common thread that you will hear discussed more and more in recent years. These critics would argue these special interests, whatever they may be, and special interest itself is sort of an umbrella term, sort of a thought Uh, thought-terminating cliché, right? Special interest. It's a bit of a boogeyman, but these are the forces pushing the public in one direction or another, framing issues in a way that benefits their own internal aims, regardless of their effect on the common good for the majority of U.S. citizens. If their common aim aligns with the common good, then great, fine, bully for us, go team. We've Voltroned together, we've done our Captain Planet thing this law made the world a better place. But the problem is that even if it acts against the public interest, then OK, great for us. Go team. We Voltron together and profits are going to rise. Jeez, Optimists once imagined that the age of information was going to be one of unending elucidation, a world in which every single person had equal access to knowledge and equal ability to act on that knowledge in a smart way toward a common good. But you can ask people from the entire gamut of fields, social scientists, statisticians, political pundits, they are often now convinced this is not the case.
3: Yeah, right now we're in the sea change, um, some kind of paradigm shift in the world of news coverage. You've got Broadcast and print falling behind as online news sources begin their rise or continue to rise, um, including the news aggregators like the Reddits of the world. Social media platforms are on the rise where people are getting most of their information, even news information, from these sources – the uh the increasing likelihood of the so-called search bubble where you get stuck in, in inside this world of news and algorithms that just reinforce the views that you've already shared or liked or mm-hmm. you know, submitted as your preferences. And the emphasis then is not on critical thought, but rather on the enjoyment of it all.
2: Right. Like the goal is not to inform you so much as it is to continue your time. On the device, On the platform, Mm -hmm. right. Just stay here longer. It's it's mentally or psychologically similar to some of the tricks casinos use.
3: It's it's very, very similar to that.
2: So that this idea is dangerous. And there's there's another point I'd like to add here on on the concept of whether or not democracy is impossible, and it's something that you and I, Matt, have talked about at length before. I think we mentioned it on air, but we Mm -hmm. talked about off air often, (laughs) off air often. Uh, It's the concept of Dunbar's number. The gist is that human brains seem to be hardwired to accept only a certain number of other human beings, around about 150, as other humans. The rest, the other billions of people in the world are either functions or grouped into broad categories – you don't know a Canadian person? That's not what you're 150? Well, guess what? Everyone who lives there is just one of the Canadians to you. <laughs> yeah. Maybe divided by what you see as their gender or what you see as their job,
3: right? Yeah.
2: The problems here are readily apparent. If you were a propagandist like Lipman or Bernays – or so many other people working today, you only have to convince the victim of your propaganda to stop thinking of some people as individuals. Make them think of people as categories. Convince them that whatever decision you'd like them to make, whatever protest you'd like them to attend, whatever vote you want them to cast, or whatever product you want them to boycott, just convince them it's in the best interest not of the world, not of the country, but of the 150 people that they think of as real people. Wow. So the game is is a little bit smaller and not as difficult as it might appear. And for the leader of a country or a you know some political arm, uh, this shows us that after a certain population size, it becomes very difficult for any individual to function as a genuine representative of the people they lead because if Dunbar's number turns out to be true, and there should be more research on it, but if Dunbar's number holds holds up, then these leaders are incapable of recognizing their constituents as human beings. Yikes.
3: And just to that end, if we want to analyze perhaps what uh, – what Walter Lippmann's Dunbar number would be if we're sticking with 150. Uh, he was a member of this place called the Metropolitan Club of the City of Washington. There are metropolitan clubs in several other places, but this one is uh, very particular because it is in Washington, D.C. It's a private social club in close proximity to the White House. I'm going to read you a quote here from their website. The Metropolitan Club is one of Washington's oldest and most valued private institutions. Since its founding in 18. 18- 1963, at the height of the Civil War by six Treasury Department officials, it has pursued its primary goal of furthering literary improvement, mutual improvement, and social purposes, whatever that means. Other members of this social club included influential journalists, policymakers, and, quote, nearly every U.S. president since Abraham Lincoln. Now, this is the kind of place where you pay an exorbitant amount of money every year and you get to go there and just talk with your your people who are you know at your stature I guess at your place in life mm-hmm. and this is where he would spend a lot of his time and you can imagine that if these are your 150 people because there were I think 1200 active members around the time 12 mm-hmm. to 1400 members I mean you can't go much higher than that
2: sure and then it it seems from a uh... Biographical note there, it seems pretty logical that he would say, You know who should be in charge? The people I
3: know. The people from the Metropolitan Club.
2: It's not that different from most human reasoning. Who should be in charge? The people that you know. There you and go. the people that you like that you have experienced firsthand, right? Yeah. So we have to ask ourselves when we feel like we are making a decision especially if we're making a decision on something that would affect the course of our government, the course of our community, whatever. It doesn't have to be – I know this has been heavy on uh, the political aspects because of Lipman's background, but it doesn't have to be that. You have to ask yourself how much of – if your mind and your actions are a car, how much time are you at the wheel And how much time are you riding shotgun? And when you are not driving, who is? This appears to be the stuff mass media doesn't want you to know, at least according to Walter Lippmann. And again, he may seem obscure today, but like Bernays, his legacy remains relevant today. And to conclude today's episode, we have to ask you – where is democracy as a concept going? What, what trends do we see? Is the age of spontaneous, almost endless information helping or hurting what so many people have praised and criticized for centuries now? And where is the American public going in specific?
3: Yeah. Do you think we are all distracted and disinterested to the point of not being able to make decisions informed or otherwise for ourselves? Um, Just maybe you personally, do you feel that way? I know sometimes I feel that way, depending on the day. Uh, And that's the end of this classic episode. If you have any thoughts or questions about this episode,